themes of the whole Old Testament. We've said last week are coming together, and this week again are all kind of crashing together here at the end of the book. This uh, morning we're calling it Follow the Cross. Uh, the cross stands at the, uh, the middle point. It is the climax. It is the thing that, that everything from all these stories we've read in the Bible all point to. Um, it's very important. It's very key to our faith, understanding what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We're going to look at that today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 15, which is page 852. If you'd like to follow along in a Bible, uh, we've got some under the chairs if you don't have your own. Um, and if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take those with you. We have more. We have uh, boxes of them in a closet somewhere. So feel free to grab one of those and keep it. But we'll be page 852, Mark chapter 15. Um, I want to just share with you a verse from Galatians before we read the text in Mark. You don't have to flip to Galatians, but just kind of give you an overview of what this problem is, why the book of Galatians was written. The book of Galatians was written because people were falling away from a cross-centered faith. They were falling into a faith where they were relying on themselves and their own ability to fulfill the law instead of uh, relying on this God who was crucified for us, this Jesus who took our place on the cross. And, and so as we look at the cross and what happened there this morning, we need to remember that just like the Galatians, we could become bewitched, as Paul says. We could fall away from that. We could start to think that somehow we are justified by God or justified before God because of what we do. We could somehow think that because of keeping religious practices, because of living a certain way, we can be justified. But clearly, the New Testament says, it's only through what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross. It's only this, this substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in Galatians, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And Paul's not talking about a movie. They didn't watch The Passion. When he says that Jesus was vividly portrayed before their eyes, he's talking about what we're doing this morning, that we're looking at these stories, these gospels, about what happened to Jesus. And it was made clear to people. They saw Jesus in hearing the proclamation of what he accomplished for us. So if you'll listen, we'll read uh, starting in verse 12. I want to read Mark 15, verses 12 through 21, or 20 here this morning to just kind of get us started, and then we're going to look at a lot more of this text into chapter 15. So 15, 12 says, And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with a man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Our text this morning is about the cross, crucifixion. This was a horrible death in the first century, and this is a death that the God of the universe was willing to go through for us. 
And that's the good news. The good news of the gospel is this death that Jesus was willing to face on our behalf. Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us from it this morning. God, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would meet us here. God, you know our temptation, just like the Galatians, uh, to fall into self-salvation. Help us to remember what you've accomplished for us. Help us to understand who you are and what you've done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we talked at Easter time uh, about the idea that Tolkien has written a lot on. He had a, a long essay uh, called On Fairy Stories, and he was talking about this concept of, of really what we would think of as fantasy writing or just fiction at a larger level and how the most important stories communicate to us that the world is broken and gritty and hard, but there is hope and grace. And sometimes we watch a movie or read a story that's, that's all one or the other, Right? And those are the least appealing stories. Uh, the postmodern gritty story where it's all just meaninglessness and grit and pain. I mean, sure, those may feel realistic sometimes when we're in that kind of depressed mood, but, but they're also not fulfilling because there is no hope in some of those stories. And then the stories that are just kind of the, the puffy fairy tale where it's all happy, you know, and it's nothing but happy ending, those, are, those lack a fulfillment as well. Because we know that's not really real. That's not the world we live in. And so the greatest stories are the ones that connect those two things together. And really the only religion that, that ultimately connects those two eyes together or those two ideas together is Christianity. Christianity is the faith that says, yes, the world is broken. Yes, you and I are broken. But God has invaded space and time. He's come after us and he's rescuing us. We have something to hope in. There is grace. There is a happy ending, but yes, the world is hard. And in this section of Mark, we're going through the hardest part of the story. We're going through something gruesome and horrific, but something that leads to the happy ending, as Tolkien called it, the U-catastrophe, right? The catastrophe that is good, this good horror that leads us to something better. And so at one level, I want to apologize this morning for talking about these horrific things but also acknowledge that our faith is based on this. Our faith is based that we're not just stuck here living in a world of horror, but the God of the universe came into space and time and went through the horror on our behalf. Not just to make him a sympathetic character, but he actually was a substitute for us so that we don't have to stay in the horror. So the story doesn't just continue in this gruesomeness. It just doesn't continue in the bad news, but there is good news. There is a happy ending. The first thing I want us to kind of dwell on this morning is the mockery of the cross and understand that the purpose of crucifixion in the first century was a form of mockery. It was a form of control. It was a way for the powers of Rome to scare people and to say, watch out or this would happen to you as well. It was a way for Rome to be a bully that maintained control over their people. So look again at verse 16. It says, the soldiers led him away inside the palace, the governor's headquarters, they called together the whole battalion. So Jesus is quite outnumbered. Verse 17, they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. So they're dressing him up. As part of his mockery, they're dressing him up like a king. They're putting on a purple cloak like a robe that a king would wear. And they're putting a crown of thorn on him. And so they're jamming these thorns into his head and they're making fun of him. They're mocking him. It says in verse uh, 18, and they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews, making fun of him. And again, the irony in the text is we understand he really is the king, but they're making fun of him. 
And they're challenging him for daring to consider himself a king under the Roman Empire's rule. Verse 19 says they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, pretending to bow down and kneel before him as someone might before a king. Verse 20 says when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes on him and they let him out to crucify him. I want us to understand that part of the mockery too was torture as well. If you go back to one of the verses we read at the very beginning, verse 15 says they scourged Jesus. Now Mark gives us the least amount of detail, but we understand a lot from the first century, and we also understand things when we read the other gospel accounts. Um, Scourging specifically was a type of torture where they would take a a whip, like a cat of nine tails is what it's called sometimes. So it's a whip with little bits of bone and glass and little pieces of metal and nails and things like that on the tips of these whips and they would actually rip the flesh off of the person's back that was being scourged and so Jesus is undergoing a terrible uh, pain it's not just mockery and emotional pain it's not just he's being made fun of he's being bowed down and made a fool of but he's genuinely being tortured he's genuinely being beaten within inches of his life having the flesh ripped off of his body and so we see he is scourged he's stripped He's made fun of. He's mocked. And then they lead him out to crucify him. Verse 21 says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So I had to jump back to explain the scourging so we understand why did he have to carry the cross. He hadn't just been hit upside the head with a reed, as we were told, but he's also been scourged. There's barely any flesh. There's probably only half of his muscles left on his back now because he's been whipped down to the bone. And so someone needs to help him to actually physically make it to the place where he's going to be crucified. And so this guy named Simon is grabbed, and Simon helps to carry his cross. And what's fascinating is this little aside where it says in verse 21, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. You're thinking, who are they? Why do I care? In the first century documents, specifically the gospel documents that we have, there's all kinds of asides. There's all kinds of places throughout the the New Testament, where we're told, and this was the city, and this is what the chief of that tribe was called, and here the leader has this title, but in this other place, the leader has that title, and here, this was this guy's son, and here's this guy's cousin, and it's just laced with all of this detailed information so that the first readers could check the sources. The first readers could go back and say, okay, I want to meet this guy, and I want to go to this place, and I want to touch and feel this place and understand that this is real. And we need to really understand that the New Testament is written as a historical document. It's not some kind of separated thing out here about religion and faith. It is rooted in history. We're told that these things that Jesus went through really happened. These are realities. This is a part of history in the world we live in. And that's important to understand because the same people that wrote the New Testament are just like you and I, and they understand that these kinds of miraculous and crazy events don't happen every day. They lived in a normal world like the normal world that we live in. And so they needed to have a lot of proof. They needed to have a lot of witnesses so that people would believe this. And so we need to understand that it's not just some kind of random leap of faith, but the New Testament claims that that this is historical and it's verifiable. And these aren't just religious documents in the sense of removed from space and time and they just talk about the things up here 
that we should just have faith in, but, but these are realities that really took place, and it's important for us to understand it from, from that standpoint. As you continue to read after the aside about Alexander and Rufus in verse 22, they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, also the name Calvary is the other translation of that. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. We understand this to be some kind of narcotic or pain reliever with the myrrh mixed in. Verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. This is another fulfillment of prophecy and multiple things that are happening here, fulfillments of prophecy that most of, most of you who have a Bible or study Bible, you can find those lists that show that all of these things continually fulfill predictions that were made about Jesus. Verse 26 says, and the inscription, or excuse me, back to verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. So the third hour uh, would have been the third hour from sunrise, and then we'll hear later that there was darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. So three hours into the day was when they actually started to crucify him, and then when he died, there was darkness from midday to about three o'clock. So the way they would count the hours is counting the hours from when the sun rose. And so they say it was the third hour when they crucified him in verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So the Romans would always put some kind of sign or placard to say, this is what this person's guilty of. So part of the mocking and part of the bullying was making sure people understood what this person was guilty of so that nobody else would try to assert themselves in that way. And so they're using this to show other people, don't, don't pretend that you're the king. You're, your, you're going to get yourself into trouble. And again, the irony is we know he really is the king. Verse 27 says, And with them they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. This word for robber, a lot of scholars would argue, is really more of a word for revolutionary. Um, not just robber, someone who steals something, but, but a criminal and a revolutionary. Verse 29 says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Really interesting thing to note here. This is the same kind of temptation and mockery that Satan was making of Jesus when he was in the wilderness. We don't get all of those details in the Gospel of Mark, but you get more details in the other Gospels about Satan's temptation of Jesus. And the temptation is basically this. Don't take the hard road. Take, take the easy road. You don't have to go through this, Jesus. And we see that in the narcotics being offered him. You don't, you don't have to experience this, Jesus. And now here he's being tempted by the mockers who, of course, don't believe he can do anything about it, but we know that Jesus could do something about it, but he went through this on purpose. He went through this for us. He didn't come down and save himself. He decided to save us instead of saving himself. And this is huge. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. As we think about the mockery of the cross, I want to think about the concept of how a bully operates. You know, a bully uses intimidation and fear to uh, shame people, to mock people, to make people live in fear so that they can be controlled. And that was part of what Rome was doing through the crucifixion, and that's part of what they were doing to Jesus here. 
Um, what's interesting is that we're also told that Satan operates as a bully. And we all know that if you stand up to a bully, a bully will flee. And what we see in the New Testament is we're encouraged to stand up to the mockery of Satan, of the accuser who judges us and condemns us and mocks us for our failure. We're to stand up to him by virtue of what Jesus underwent for us. So we have to understand that Jesus was mocked for us so that we don't have to continue to endure mockery. Jesus was shamed for us so we don't have to continue to walk in shame. Jesus was broken for us so we don't have to remain broken and worthless. But as we begin to understand what he did for us on purpose, what he went through, that enables us to fight accusation, to fight the bullying. I wanted to give you a picture to think about. When you have those doubts that come into your mind, when you have those thoughts that tell you what a loser you are and what an idiot you are, um, just a picture of a, a bully here. This is Nelson from The Simpsons. I don't know if any of you are into great literature and television stuff, but Nelson is this bully, right? And he's got this classic laugh, this ha-ha, you know, he's like making fun of you. And, and that's really the role that Satan plays in our life. He, he mocks us. He tells us what an idiot we are. He tells us how stupid we are. He tells us how ashamed we should feel. Like I said, we're, we're told to stand up to this bully. And we don't stand up to the bully in our own strength. See, see, what you say to the bully who tells you that you've failed is you say, well, I have failed, but Jesus has succeeded for me. I, I do deserve judgment, but Jesus took the judgment for me. I deserve mockery, but Jesus was mocked in my place. And this is really spelled out uh, in James. James 4, 7 is a great verse to, to write down as an application point for you. How do I respond when I feel this mockery and I feel the shame that we all live with? It says in James 4, 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist those accusations. We've talked about this before. The word Satan and the word devil are just merely Hebrew and Greek translations for the same word, which is accuser. He is the accuser, and that is his job, and that is what he does. He mocks us. And he has great ammunition because we often deserve to be mocked. As I said, we have to acknowledge as, as Christians, we are a confessing people that say, yes, I failed, but Jesus has succeeded for me. Our faith as Christians should never be in our own track record. Our faith as Christians should never be in our own success rate. And how many years I've been a great husband and what a great job I've done as a dad. My faith should be in what Jesus has accomplished for me. And then I should... By that, acknowledge that anything good that's ever happened in my life is, is a result of his, him transforming me and teaching me new ways to rely on him and to do what's right because of what he's done for me, because of the mockery that he took in my place. This judgment that Jesus is taking is made really clear in verse 33. If you look at Mark 15, 33, it says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. There was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So again, just the way they count time, this is basically from noon to three. So the sunniest part of the day, the hottest part of the day, it went completely dark. And we understand this to be judgment. And we understand this really to be supernatural. One of the things that a lot of times modern Christians like to do is they, we go back and when something interesting happened in the Bible, some people are like, well, this could be explained. You know, maybe it was an eclipse or maybe there's some kind of natural phenomenon. 
And that's not to deny that God could be at work in history if there is a natural phenomenon that takes place as well. But this is one of those places where there is no natural explanation. There's no other kind of thing you could explain this with. That We know that it wasn't an eclipse because of the way the calendar runs and when they would observe Passover. We know that it was impossible for it to have been something like that. It had to have been something completely bizarre and completely unusual. It was supernatural. There's this darkness that came, this judgment that came. And just a couple of cross-references that you could look up are in Isaiah 13 and in Jeremiah 15, where it really is spelled out that God comes in judgment on his people when there's darkness at noonday. It's really spelled out in these prophecies of judgment, right? And we know that uh, just kind of for where the Bible is going in Isaiah and Jeremiah, a lot of that force is, is kind of pointing towards the judgment on Israel when they were sent into exile. But we also know that Jesus took the greater judgment, right? We know that everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled through Jesus. And so we're told in the Old Testament scriptures that judgment comes when there is a darkness that shows up at noonday. And we see this just visually portrayed here in the crucifixion of Christ. All the judgment that Israel deserves, all the judgment that mankind deserves, all the judgment that all of humanity deserves comes down on this judgment day at the cross. And Jesus is mocked in our place. Jesus is judged in our place. So when, when you have doubt, when those things creep into your mind, when you're told what an idiot you are, when you're doubting yourself, you say, yes, I have failed, but Jesus has succeeded. Yes, I've fallen, but Jesus got up. Yes, I deserve mockery and I, I feel ashamed, but Jesus took my shame and took my mockery, so I don't have to stay there. I don't have to live there. The next thing I want us to think about is the loneliness of the cross. We see Jesus going through uh, probably a, a loneliness and a forsakenness that none of us could even imagine. I think we've all, we've all felt forsaken. We all know what it feels like to be lonely, but Jesus takes this at a level that, that none of us could imagine. Look at verse 34. Verse 34 says, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then more mocking comes, it says in verse 35, some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Elijah's name in Hebrew or Aramaic would have been like something like Elihu or Eliyah. And so it would kind of sound like Eloi, right? And so it sounds very similar. And they're thinking, oh, he's, he's screaming out for Elijah because they were prophecies and traditions that Elijah would come and save people during a time of judgment. It says, Elijah will come. Verse 36, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. So there's an irony again. They're saying, Elijah will come. He's calling for Elijah. And we know that Jesus has said and other places that Elijah did come. He came through the ministry of John the Baptist. Elijah already came. Elijah came to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. That's a prophecy we have again in the Old Testament that tells us about what the days of the Messiah are going to be like. When people ask John the Baptist, are you Elijah? He's like, well, no, I'm John the Baptist, right? <laughs> he knew he wasn't physically Elijah, but Jesus says elsewhere, yeah, he, he came in the spirit of Elijah. He played that role. He fulfilled the ministry of Elijah. He looked like Elijah. He ministered like Elijah. And he brought that repentance. And he told people to get ready. 
for the Messiah. And so again, we have that, uh, that irony that people think he's calling for Elijah to rescue him when really he's calling for God to rescue him. Because when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not just expressing how he feels, the loneliness that he's experiencing that moment, but he's also expressing the hope that is declared in Psalm 22. You see, he's quoting Psalm 22. Jesus had the Bible memorized. He didn't carry his Bible around in a cargo pocket like we might, but he knew it, right? He, he had ingested the Bible. He had the Old Testament scriptures in him, and often their prayers would be the Psalms, right? They didn't have these new songs coming out every week on the radio like we do. They had the Psalms. Those were their songs. Those were their prayers, and those would be the things he would pray. And so when he would shout, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's basically referencing all of Psalm 22, which starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They wouldn't have referred to Psalm 22 as Psalm the 22nd. They, they would say, you know, the my God, my God, why have you forsaken me Psalm? That's how they would refer to it. Kind of like we do that with songs, right? You don't really know the name of a song. You're like, you know that chorus. That's, that's the name of the song. That, that's how he's referring to this. And so in his anguish, he is crying that out, and it is for real. He's feeling utterly forsaken and utterly separated from God, and we need to recognize that. And so one of the main things for us to learn from this is that we, like Jesus, can pray the Psalms, but we can also, like Jesus, find hope in the Psalms as well, because Psalm 22 doesn't stay there. Psalm 22 starts off, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But Psalm 22 ends in hope. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture that we get in the Psalms. So he's giving us this example of how to pray that, that we should actually be honest to God. You see, as Christians, and I think just the general religious tradition uh, that you see in our country is that we either kind of go with brutal honesty, brutal honesty or we go with everything's fine, right? So sometimes we just stay in that despair. My God, you've forsaken me. I don't know what to do. Everything's terrible. Or we kind of have this fake religious thing that we put on. Everything's fine. I'm hopeful. Yes, bad things are good and everything's okay. And, and we kind of, we don't even know how to talk about suffering and pain in our life because we've been taught for so long to be fake about it. But the Psalms model this journey that we are to go through. Like our father, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, which means he who wrestles with God. We have an example to follow that we can wrestle with God. We can pray the Psalms just like Jesus prayed the Psalms. We can say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we can also hope in God. We don't just stay there. But as Jesus was praying, I believe the whole psalm, we can also pray the whole psalm. I want to read to you some of the ending of Psalm 22. At the end of Psalm 22, we find hope. Again, if you're in the Black Bibles, it's page uh, 458. I just want to read Psalm 22, 24 through 28 give you a picture. It's, it's, there's a lot more verses to it, but just give you a taste of, of where the psalm goes. It doesn't just stay with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him, talking about God, hasn't just left us alone. We're not just staying there in our loneliness, but God is there with us. And Jesus knows this as he's crying out, in his loneliness and in his pain. He knows verse 24, and he knows verse 25. Verse 25 says, From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. 
Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. We all know what it's like to be alone. And when we're alone, we should honestly acknowledge it. But we should pray like Jesus does. We should pray like through Psalm 22 or through Psalm 42. We see this example of saying, God, I feel totally abandoned right now. Where are you? How long will I be alone? I was thinking about um, those times when we feel completely abandoned and what that is like. I was remembering a movie I saw years ago. Um, My wife, I think, cried nonstop. I just kind (laughs) of cried occasionally. But it was a really, really overwhelming movie. It's a movie called Hope Floats. Anybody seen the movie Hope Floats? Have you seen that? The movie came out like in 98, so I know some of you weren't, weren't born yet. But, um, but this is a scene where the dad is leaving the daughter, and this is an incredibly horrific scene where she just screams and is like chasing after his car and saying, Daddy, don't leave, and she's just crying and sobbing and screaming, don't leave me, don't leave me. She's said in her mind, my daddy's not going to leave me, but he just drives off. He just leaves her. And if you're like me and you know what those feelings are like to have, have been abandoned at times in your life, it can, be, it can be overwhelming. But Jesus went through something far worse. And again, we have to understand that he went through it on purpose. This was something he chose for us. It, it wasn't just an accident. It wasn't something he couldn't avoid. It was something he took for you. Jesus went through this cosmic loneliness, this universal loneliness that none of us could even imagine for us so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be brought back to him. So when when you feel that kind of loneliness, tell God. He can handle it. Wrestle with him. Cry out to him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But don't stop there. Continue to pray the whole prayer. Pray all of Psalm 22. Pray all of Psalm 42. Recognize that, yes, you may feel completely abandoned, and you may be abandoned, but God is there. And he proved that through the cross. The cross is the window into this God who would not leave us all alone, who comes after us and brings us back to himself. And then this becomes really clear in the the next section. The next thing that we see is the curtain being torn in two, and torn in two, and we start to see the meaning of the cross. So if you read from me, we'll read uh, verses 37 through 39. It's a small little section here that's really powerful. It says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So we have a Hebrew statement of theology here. The temple curtain is ripped open. And we also have a pagan statement of, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. This is the meaning of the cross, all wrapped up in just a couple of verses here. The first thing I want us to think about is the curtain being ripped open. That proves that we are not alone. We don't stay in our loneliness. The curtain symbolizes the separation between God's holiness, the holy place in the temple, and our sinfulness. And what the cross accomplishes is the ripping open of that doorway so that the barrier is no longer there, so that we are brought into the presence of God, 
the cosmic loneliness is that we would stay separated from God in our sin. But what the cross accomplishes is bringing us into relationship with God. The entire book of Hebrews is about this verse, that temple curtain being ripped open and, and Jesus bringing us into the presence of God. And of course, there's a lot of other things in the book of Hebrews as well, but this is, this is the crux of it, right? That, that we're brought into the presence of God and that our relationship is restored with him. And then we have this incredible pagan statement, this battle-hardened centurion who's just participated in the torture and death of Jesus saying, yeah, he is the son of God. Now I've just seen it and I understand intuitively that this is true. I think we have to be careful um, as modern people that we don't base our faith on too much scientific evidence because you know at at a root level, everything we do is based on faith. Doesn't mean it should be mindless faith, but you know, when I put my foot on the brake pedal, that's faith. Sure, I mean, it's based on some other things. I, I trust, you know, this company can be trusted and they statistically, you know, make cars that generally keep people alive and you know, so those sorts of things. But there's still a faith statement I'm making every time I put my foot on the brakes. And, and so we need to understand that, yes, there is a, there's a place for scientific, rational thinking, but there's also a place for just acknowledging what's true. And this section in Romans that we've been working on, that we've been memorizing in our service, <clears throat> Romans 1 is talking about how all of mankind suppresses the truth. We all have that bent inside us. So don't use your academic tendencies as one more excuse to suppress the truth. I'm not saying throw those things out. I, I, love, I love to study um, I love to pick apart the text, and I think it's important, but I also think it's important, like the Roman centurion, to just call things as they are, to say it is what it is. He is the Son of God. And I'm going to stop suppressing that truth. I'm going to stop coming up with excuses and reasons not to believe, but I'm just going to call it like it is. I have a picture of a, a microscope here, because I think sometimes this is how we think of knowledge in a modern context. In a post-enlightenment world, we think of knowledge as very scientific, something that you can look at a, through a, a telescope or through a microscope. This is just a picture of bacteria under a microscope. We think in these very scientific ways, as if it's settled. But again, we, you know, if you pay attention to science, you know every few years we're changing our minds about things because we're learning more. Yes, there's a basic knowledge you can have. You can see things, you can study things, and you can realize, oh, I didn't I didn't see all of it. There, there is more. And so as humans, a human that can function in the real world, you just learn to rely on your intuition. And that's what we see modeled in this uh, centurion. Again, I love to study. I have a picture here of Greek texts. I think it's important that we would pick apart the Bible, that we should study it, that we should study things like apologetics and reasons to believe. All those things are valuable. And they've really helped me in my own faith. But there comes a time when you have to realize that those things really are more about bolstering your faith than they are about actually giving you faith. Faith is something that comes when you see the reality of Jesus crucified in your place and you acknowledge that reality. That's what faith is. Faith is not something you can build, build based on years of study. What it is is it's the place where you give up trying to save yourself. That's what faith is. Faith is the place where you recognize, I don't have it all together. I don't have all the knowledge. I don't know everything. I can never be smart enough but I see this picture, as we saw in Galatians 3, where Paul says, Jesus was vividly portrayed for you as crucified. 
What else do you need? The God of the universe gave himself for you, and you want more information. And so we have this beautiful, beautiful example of faith in the Roman centurion, of calling it like it is. One of, uh, one of the great epistemologists, I guess be what you'd call him, a philosopher named Michael Pagliani, talks about this concept of tacit knowing. That there is a philosophical, rational way that you can build knowledge and prove things and what we call epistemology, kind of the study of how you know things. But at its root level, Pagliani says, there's just this intuitive knowing that human beings have. You just know stuff. You just see it. And so that's really what I'm calling on you today is to see and recognize this God who gave himself for you and to recognize that you can't save yourself, but Jesus offers you salvation. He offers you a way in. Well, as we wrap up, I just want us to look at these last few verses in chapter 15 that are really a setup for the resurrection. We already looked at the resurrection on Easter. Um, if you weren't here yet, I think we've got a recording of that, hopefully, that you could listen to if you'd like. Um, but what's really amazing is you see the setup of the women as the first witnesses. And no offense to the ladies here, but in the first century, women were not relied on as reliable witnesses. And so this is another one of those beautiful things that shows us the reliability of our first documents. That, that there's this kind of undermining of the normal way that if you were trying to trick people, pull the wool over their eyes and start a new religion and make a bunch of stuff up and manufacture some documents, this is not how you would do it, right? That the apostles fail at every level when it comes to covering things up. That they expose their own stupidity and they rely on women, again, who wouldn't have been reliable witnesses in the first century. And all of Christianity looks back to women as the first witnesses. Look at verse 42, or verse 40, excuse me. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Saying Jesus had all these female disciples, these women who ministered to him, these women who followed him, and they were the ones that stuck with him in his final, final moments. The, the brave apostles, the ones who would have been, you know, writing the cover-up if this was a cover-up, they're nowhere to be seen. But the women are there. They're watching. Look at verse 42. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So just like we have the example of the centurion who just oversaw the death and torture of Jesus, now finds faith, we have a council member who had been a part of the trial that we looked at last week that condemned Jesus, now finding faith in him, now becoming convinced. We see people turning saying, I think I can save myself. And now seeing the crucifixion, seeing Jesus die on the cross, say, he's it. He's my only hope. And so we see Joseph going and asking for the body. Verse 44, it says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Again, clarification in these early documents saying, he was really dead. It wasn't just a hoax, but he was absolutely dead. It says in verse 46, And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph 
saw where he was laid. And again, this is a setup for the resurrection. You see then in chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, these same women that had been there through the resurrection, that had watched his burial, were the same ones that were the first witnesses to the resurrection. They saw him die, they saw him buried, and they saw him rise again. Again, just one more piece of evidence that shows how reliable the New Testament is. I want to recommend to you N.T. Wright if you're looking for evidences on the resurrection. I know I just told you all, just believe it, look at it, here it is, trust it. But if you're still wanting more, N.T. Wright is a great author that writes for the skeptic on understanding these kinds of things, that the resurrection is true, that it is historical fact. He's one of these interesting characters who's uh, too liberal to kind of belong in the the typical evangelical Bible-believing camp that most of the writers we read are, but he's also a genuine believer in the resurrection that doesn't fit in the typical historical academic studies. And so he's done great work to prove to those people in that world of historic Jesus studies that the resurrection is real, that, that it happened, that it's something that we can trust in. And one of the things that he points out is, is this uh, quirky, uh, interesting thing that the New Testament writers put in here, that the women were the witnesses. And not only were the women witnesses, but Joseph, who had just condemned him as a part of the council, he turned and trusted in Christ. And not only Joseph, but the centurion, who had just overseen his death and crucifixion, now believes he truly is the Son of God. So that's, that's my encouragement to us this morning, that we would have a faith like that centurion, who would just see him and recognize truly he is the Son of God. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the reality of the crucifixion. And God, I pray this morning for those that are here. I know there are so many here wrestling with this reality because, God, we want to be God. We want your place. Romans 1 makes that clear. And God, I pray that your spirit would come and allow all of us this morning to lay down our arms, to stop fighting, to recognize that we cannot save ourselves. But you are the God that died in our place, that gave yourself for us to bring us back to God.